Hello and welcome to Outward for the month of August. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And inspired by the New York Times essay about a straight woman's lesbian work wife, Google it. I am instituting daily leg showings for all my heterosexual colleagues. You're welcome. Scandal. Love it. (laughs) I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I need people to stop talking about the end of summer when there are at least like six weeks of summer weather left. Stop it. Mm -hmm. Agree. And I'm Brandon Tensley, the outgoing associate editor at New America. And for the past two weeks, I've not been able to stop listening to Bad as the Boys, Tovlo's bop about a summer fling with a woman who broke her heart. Praise for Tovlo. Aww. So this month, we're feeling heated up. We're feeling angry. We're feeling charged. We're feeling challenged. Sometimes we're feeling petty. So today, we're talking about fights. The fights we're having in our queer communities now, the fights our LGBTQ ancestors fought in years past, and the fights that we will probably still be fighting generations into the future. So we've each brought a current ongoing fight to discuss. We're going to start off with that. Then we'll hear a clip from an old interview with Gene O'Leary, who tells the story of a famous rift in the early gay liberation movement. And we'll leave you all with a few bits of queer culture that have instigated fights in our own lives and will possibly instigate fights in yours. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, but first, we're going to kick things off, as usual, with our August Pride and Provocations. Brandon, what do you have? So I have a double-pronged provocation. Woof! Oh, I know. I have to make oh, up for God. all the prize that I usually feel. <laughs> um, <laughs> regarding Paris's burning, but... It is mostly, par- at least partly, about me as an audience member because um, I think it's a fantastic film about the New York City drag ball scene um, and the complex intersections of race and gender and class and sexuality that go along with that particular community. So the mm-hmm. first part of this provocation is, this is a very Brandon provocation, but it's with myself. Um, <laughs> so I saw the film for the first time just last week. Oh, um, If you're in D.C., East Street Cinema is playing it. Yeah, it was reissued this summer, Right. Right. Um, and so I think I had sort of taken for granted just how powerful like a, a social document like this film made in 1990 could be to see for yourself. Um, I had mostly kind of assumed wrongly that through like cultural osmosis, I already knew enough about Paris's burning such that I didn't need to, you know, pay money or even watch it on Netflix where it's also streaming. Um, And so I'm partly provoked at myself for not seeing this film sooner because it's the sort of thing that, in my opinion, you want to carry with you on this earth for as long as possible. Um, The second part of this provocation um, is a little more, is much broader. And so seeing this film in 2019, I think illuminates just how little has changed justice-wise for trans folks. And so you see this, I don't know if you guys Mm. have seen the film. Um, but you see this at least partly through uh, Venus Extravaganza, uh, a trans woman who's one of the main figures in the film. And so the end of her particular story arc is also the end of Paris's burning. And so among the many wrenching, tragic things about that particular story, I think, is the many ways that justice for trans folks today is as elusive as it was, you know, um, decades ago at this point. And so for me, it was something where, um, on the one hand, this this was a movie of so much beauty um, and insight into uh, one of the most marginalized of marginalized communities. 
Um, and it also shows you just how much work is still to be done in many ways, work that never really seems to have started. So that's my provocation. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's a great. Yeah, I think we we with that film people focus on the uh, on the sort of fun of it yeah. so much, but I think that's a really important message to take away from it, Brandon, for sure. Uh, Christina, what do you have? I've got a pride this month. It's slightly delayed because this this cultural um, piece of brilliance has been around for a while, but um, I'm proud of. Old Town Road, the song by Lil Nas X. Um, So Lil Nas X, he's a vocalist, he's a rapper, he's new on the scene. He came out as queer on the last day of Pride Month. Um, And since then, his first single, Old Town Road, which is just a good-ass song. (laughs) You should listen to it if you have somehow managed to not listen to it yet. Um, Has broken all the Billboard records. It's the longest-running number one on the hot on the hot R&B and hip hop chart, the hot rap songs chart, the all genre hot 100 chart. He's certainly, you know, hit this metric of domination. And it just gives me so much pride to see this extraordinarily talented, but also just joyful and humble and fun loving gay 20 year old just beating the shit out of these charts, (laughs) especially as an artist who is gay and black in country music which, uh, you know, is an industry that has tried very hard to suppress black artists and queer artists and also deny that country music made by black and queer artists is country music. Um, I, like, love seeing queer people excel in all industries, and this one in particular feels especially powerful. Also, he's just so much fun to watch. He, I saw this video. It was one of these videos that was being passed around as, like, feel good, inspiring, blah, blah, blah. And it actually was really feel good <laughs> and inspiring. Um, he <laughs> surprised this fifth grade class at some elementary school that, in Ohio. Yes. <laughs> so this class apparently, you know, or, you know, the whole grade of fifth graders learned the song to perform at some end of year celebration. And he saw the video and so went and surprised them. And they freaked <laughs> out. They're just like jumping up and down, singing along with him. And I kind of like teared up just thinking about these kids all over the country who are unable to escape the remarkable stylings of this like gay man who wears neon fringed cowboy jackets with no shirt underneath and and makes a really good song that's been stuck in my head for the past 19 weeks. Brian, how are you feeling this month? Well, um, I have a pride, um, but if your pride was a little bit delayed, mine is like severely delayed um, because it's a <laughs> book that came out in 1977. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was just reissued this past June. It's called um, The Faggots and Their Friends Between Revolutions. Mm. Um, and it is a, a classic book that I actually didn't know about until I, until I heard about this reissue, but it was, it was, it's been sort of a cult classic for, you know, four decades or so now, um, written by Larry Mitchell, 77, um, reissued by night boat books, uh, now. So you can find it there. Um, and it's really fascinating. It's this, um, sort of, it started as like a children's book is what he intended to write, but it became in the end, this like adult fairy tale, sort of 1970s queer philosophy tract, kind of like a sacred text. Um, it has like the story is kind of hard to describe, but it, essentially there's a land, a, a sort of fantastic land called Ramrod that is run by the men, the, who the book calls the men that are uh, straight men. Um, and then within that land, the faggots and their various friend groups who are like the strong women, the drag queens, <laughs> the, um, the queer men who are sort of more assimilative gays. 
um, there, there's many different tribes. They all are living uh, sort of under the rule of the men in this in this land of Ramrod, um, trying to to survive and foment the gender and sexual revolution to come. Um, and it's beautifully illustrated um, by uh, artist Ned Asta. Um, and all of these folks lived on a 70s commune called Lavender Hill up in Ithaca. So it's got that vibe. Um, and it's just so fantastic. It made me so happy to read it. Um, and I'm so, so I'm proud that that book was created way back then. And I'm also proud that uh, Nightboat has reissued it for a new generation. So I'm hoping everybody will go check it out because yeah, it made that me really happy. So good. Yeah, it's cool. Um, however, I'm also provoked. Me too. This month. I think Christina's provoked as well. Yeah. Um, by something else. And that is the fact that our dear Brandon is leaving us. What the hell, Brandon? Know, I'm really I'm upset. I'm, I'm glaring at him right now. You can't see it. She really is, though. But I can what see is it. so good that you are leaving the Outward podcast? Tell us. So I'm departing uh, Outward and New America to go to CNN to be a national political writer uh, covering uh, politics and culture and identity and all these other interesting uh, intersections. So uh, basically a lot of the stuff that I've been freelancing um about for the past like five years anyway and i get to do it as a full-time staff writer Uh, (laughs) that sounds so boring i don't (laughs) understand why you would want to do that and a really unimportant and frivolous beat (laughs) yeah yeah Um, i think it's a waste of time (laughs) i'm really proud to see all of your work in so many different parts of your life pay off in this really Mm -hmm. incredible sounding job and i'm provoked at CNN for not (laughs) allowing you to continue on this podcast. I'm never going to forgive that network for that. Um, But I mean, obviously, we're all really excited to keep reading you on America's premier cable news network. We can say reading the content, but also reading insulting, reading, (laughs) (laughs) giving me a read. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to be, I can't wait until the first article that you write that becomes one of our provocations on here. Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, We're going to be on the lookout for that for sure. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is all amazing. And we're so happy for you. Um, And I think it's worth noting that this is our one year anniversary, actually, this episode. Um, We started in August of last year. So Brandon has, has made the first year of the Outward Podcast possible and a beautiful thing. So um, thank you for that, my dear. Um, on that note, we are just beginning the search for a, um, not a, no one can replace Brandon, but for <laughs> a new voice to join the podcast. So if any of our listeners have um, ideas for folks who might be good for that role, please feel free to email us um, at outwardpodcast at slate.com um, and we will see what happens. So as Christina mentioned earlier, this episode is all about fights, divides, and schisms old and new that sometimes tear through our queer communities. Uh, To zoom in on this a little bit, um, we've each picked one fight to talk about and parse. Um, And so I think we should just dive right in. Brian, what's got you ready to throw down your glittery gauntlet on this episode? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, this is a fight um, that is is definitely ongoing. It's in fact, the film that the fight is based on comes out the day we're recording, um, which is the middle of August. Uh, And it is the film Adam, um, which is a new a new movie out from director Reese Ernst. Um, and many of our listeners may be aware there has been a controversy um, uh, roiling about this film for weeks now um, before even a lot of people will have seen it. 
there has been a call for boycotts, for canceling, and it's all over sort of what the premise of the film is, which is that in Brooklyn in 2006, there is a cis male teenager named Adam um, who goes to spend the summer with his queer older sister. Uh, When he does that, he kind of enters this lesbian and trans milieu of that particular moment. Um, He has a crush on a lesbian named Jillian. She mistakes him at a party for being a trans guy himself, um, and he pretends to do this. He proceeds. He proceeds to uh, you know accept that uh, misconception and, and pretend to be a trans guy for the summer. Um, and you know I don't want to spoil too much, but various uh, situations ensue from that. Um, it's worth noting that this was directed by uh, a trans guy, uh, Reese's trans, uh, majority queer cast and crew, based on a novel by a lesbian. So it is a queer project through and through. Um, however, uh, the critique has been the main. There's been a number of them, but the main one I think is that um, a queer artist should not be making a story that might participate in tropes like the fa- like the big one that trans people uh, often face that they're fake in some way uh, that are negative and dangerous to the community um, and that also we we shouldn't be representing a moment in queer history like this that is not as evolved about trans and lesbian identity as uh, we are now so I think the key just to sort of frame our discussion I think the key key fight here the key debate, is uh, do queer artists need to make art with a sensitivity to what is good, quote unquote, for the community? Um, and so I know you guys haven't uh, seen the film. I don't think I have, so we don't have to necessarily talk about you know the specifics of it. But I think that larger question um, is is worth exploring. So I'm curious what your reactions are to that. I the thing that I always think about when I read critiques that center on a question about whether something is good or not for any given community mm-hmm. is um, I think there's a tendency to see bad behavior or a bad character in a film as endorsement of a bad behavior or a bad character instead of an exploration mm. of bad behavior or a bad character. I haven't seen the film. So, yeah, like you said, I'm not going to opine on the specifics of it. But I will say it's annoying to me to hear about another movie where a lesbian ends up falling for a cis man. Mm -hmm. I've seen just so many queer movies where either a lesbian starts out with a cis man or ends up with a cis man. And it's like, wow, our identities aren't so black and white as we thought. But like, I don't know, sometimes they are a little bit black and white. And sometimes people don't want, you know, their, their sexual and romantic lives have nothing to do with cis men. All of which is to say, I I don't think that it's a responsibility necessarily for queer and trans artists to be making like good films that portray queer and trans people as like simple and uh, cut and dry like caricatures instead of as real nuanced, complicated people dealing with very complicated lives. Yeah, I mean, I I particularly like, Christina, your point about um, sort of endorsement versus exploration. That's something I haven't thought about before. Um, And it it makes me wonder sort of like, also having not seen the the film, like what can or should 
filmmakers do about films that are this controversial? Is there a way beyond sort of just like letting audience members just sit with the film that people can engage with the film and engage with the filmmaker, which I know like you want some sort of critical distance between the filmmaker sort of like telling you exactly what you should think and feel and uh, leave the theater, um, uh, you know, what feelings and thoughts you should leave the the theater with. Um, But for something like this, I feel like some sort of historical context um like the there's a slate piece um that went up yeah there so there we just published a piece in slate um by katie anania um who's a queer art historian um about sort of arguing that the one way to look at this movie um is as a historical drama so it's you know it's being sold as sort of a uh uh, comedy of uh, romantic comedy or comedy of errors, that kind of thing. But but it, in as much as that, it is also a portrait of this particular moment, uh, this sort of 2006 mid aughts moment in queer history, where um, especially trans identity was, um, you know, sort of, she uses the word in this piece, like clumsily being like articulated and explored and like norms are being established. You know, understanding the film in that way may be helpful um, to seeing what it's up to um, instead of instead of only as, as like a comedy. That's really interesting. And it, I mean, that makes me even more excited to see the film. I know... I imagine that it would be very validating for people who came of age in that moment or who lived through that moment in some way or another um, to see that sort of Mm -hmm. accurately represented. Like, I think because we've had so little, like, queer and trans-driven, queer and trans art on the mainstream stage of American culture, there haven't been very many opportunities to, um, like— explore those moments and um, moments of self-definition among a community without the sort of pressure of like, well, you are one of the few. It's kind of the pressure that I just put on it in my, uh, (laughs) when I just said that. Uh, Like, you're one of the few things out there. You better, you know, um, cross all your T's and dot all your I's in the exact way that Mm -hmm. we're currently crossing T's and and dotting I's um, instead of trying to um, you know, build a narrative from a moment that might have passed. That's really not so long ago, but in a lot of ways feels like a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that queer people, like like thinking, I actually got into an argument about this with my partners last night because uh, we watched the film together. Um, and one of the things we were arguing about was like whether queer people as as audience members should sort of be um, more generous to our artists, or or rather, the, or whether the respectful thing is to be uh, as critical as as we would be with anything else. So I'm saying, like, you know, with, <laughs> with a film like this, do you do you say, hey, uh, there hasn't been an opportunity for you know this director or and this kind of crew and this like all the things that went you know were behind the making of this film to to have this kind of platform. So maybe. We want to like you know reserve our criticism, uh, or or maybe not reserve it entirely, but like maybe soften it or, or be gentler or something. You know, you could you could pick a, a phrase for that, or or is the like respectful thing to you know treat it as you would anything else? Um, I'm curious what y'all think about that. I think it's important that we criticize our own people and our own work and our own culture with the same vigor that we do everything else, especially uh-huh. because if you're a straight people, if you're a straight people, especially <laughs> because if you're a straight person going to see this film, 
And, you know, you you assume like, oh, isn't this nice that like a trans person made a film and there are all these trans people in it. Um, it, it might be important for you to know that there's not a queer consensus around it and that there are actually a lot of different perspectives on this mm. kind of story. And so don't come away from the film thinking like, you know, the way that queer people want to be represented. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think um, it's not to say that you should give it a sort of like get out of jail free card, but there's a way to sort of like lovingly and constructively criticize a film um, and give it the context and dimension that it deserves, I think. All right. So that's one fight. Let's move <laughs> on to another one. Uh, Christina, I think you have something for us. I do. <laughs> My fight is about Marianne Williamson, the spiritual leader, author, and now presidential candidate. Um, Future president, you mean. Oh, my God. Hashtag orb gang. So uh, Marianne Williamson is somebody who I knew very little about until uh, she started running for president. And one of my queer friends was talking about, oh, yeah, I saw her speak at such and such a church service. She led a meditation. She had me bawling, like is really into her work. I didn't know that Marianne Williamson's first followers were gay men. She sort of uh, set up shop in L.A. in the 80s or late 70s um, and started leading discussion groups around this text, A Course in Miracles, um, that was uh, heavily influenced by New Thought, which is uh, – a little bit related to Christian science in that um, it purports that, you know, nothing is real. Everything is influenced by your mind and including your health. So during the AIDS crisis, uh, Williamson started a nonprofit that delivered meals to homebound people with AIDS. She led a project called Project Nightlight that sent volunteers to sit with and sing to people who were nearing death. Um, and this was a time when Western medicine, for reasons of entrenched prejudice and hate had not come up with a framework or treatment for HIV and AIDS. So a lot of people, a lot of gay men, uh, were drawn to the teachings of Marianne Williamson and um, Louise Hay, who helped run this nonprofit, uh, in part because they were putting forth spiritual explanations and treatment plans. Um, and they, you know, I think varied a little bit in terms of how literal they were in their idea that, you know, you can cure yourself. Louise Hay, for instance, did say that she cured her own cervical cancer by confronting past sexual trauma. Marianne Williamson, as far as I can tell, her teachings were a little bit more abstract. She encouraged people to write letters to their HIV virus, uh, imagine uncloaking it, seeing it as something to embrace, not hate. Um, she talked about, you know, healing yourself through loving yourself and for some gay men, especially people who had grown up in a faith tradition that rejected them because of their sexuality, um, but, you know, people who might have still felt comfort in a spiritual approach to health, uh, you know, it, it was a source of solace for them. And, you know, uh, for people who were trying to understand and grieve the deaths of many loved ones, um, you know, she gave them a place to come together and talk about it. So now that she's running for president, um, a lot of people are sharing those memories and a lot of other gay men are sharing other memories of Marianne Williamson making their friends feel like they were at fault for their own illness and blaming themselves when they couldn't heal themselves through positive thinking or love themselves enough. Um, and a lot of people remembering that as, as very damaging to their communities, especially at a time when a lot of activists were trying to um, – 
organize people in defense of a community that was being neglected. So, uh, you know, people remember her as a huckster, as some, an AIDS profiteer. These are some of the allegations that are going around on social media. Um, so I talked to some people on on both sides of this fight, if you want to call it that. And um, it's a really complex issue because these are people's actual memories and feelings, and they seem to conflict. Um, and I think it's very possible that nobody is wrong in this situation. People just interpreted and internalized her teachings in very different ways. You know, you can't tell somebody that what brought them solace and hope was wrong or, you know, that that somebody who gave them a a place of love and comfort when they felt like they didn't have any was wrong just because it caused somebody else, you know, grave psychological and emotional harm. Um, but what really gets me is that the Marianne Williamson campaign refuses to admit or recognize that both memories, both sets of memories could be true at the same time. Um, it's It's been interesting to me to see um, – the 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 passion that people bring to this particular issue, in part because it's about defending or defining a shared history that queer people are really the only ones qualified to write. So I think people are very protective of that history and painfully aware of the lessons that we should be drawing from from that history, the you know history of uh, the state-sponsored trauma and neglect during the AIDS crisis. And when there are different memories or interpretations of that history, it can feel very disorienting and deeply personal to people. One man that I spoke to who really loves Marianne Williamson and, you know, was part of her uh, AIDS support nonprofit back in the day was saying it's it feels like someone's attacking his mother. She was a motherly figure to him. Mm -hmm. um, and other people have equally strong memories of her as somebody <laughs> who was making their friends feel terrible about themselves when they were already suffering. So, you know, we're we're always fighting for our queer futures, too, when we fight about our um, queer histories. And in this case, where this AIDS era figure is raking in millions of dollars in donations and trying to be president, it's um, risen to the surface of uh, of our social media discourse. Have you guys been paying attention to it at all? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the elements, and you, we should say you wrote a great piece about this. Christina, we should say we'll, I wrote a great piece on it. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll, thank we'll you, on, We'll have on the uh, on the show page for sure. But um, one of the things, that one of the just extra dimensions to it, that uh, to everything you just said, is that you know a lot of people who haven't been familiar with her until now are treating her as kind of this camp figure mm -hmm. because she she's she speaks differently on a debate stage than everybody else and she she kind of speaks to this uh, to a number of different strands of like what we I think we in a previous podcast called like queer spirituality um, these you know these sort of um, alternative um, models for uh, being spiritual um, and one of one of the quotes that you got uh, that you featured in your piece was sort of about uh, I think it was a tweet actually it was sort of how strange it was for this older gay man to see and painful it was to see younger gay folks treating this person as like a funny camp figure yeah when for him it, she was she was a villain yeah and for me it also kind of illuminates I guess the, just the the sheer scale of dev uh, of devastation of the AIDS crisis right when I think about um at least in part, why does this sort of gulf exist between what younger gays know and what older older gays are saying and feeling is because like 
a lot of them aren't here to really, you know, um, communicate that history and to um, sort of pass it down, you know, for young gays. It's like she's ready to be a meme, right? Like I remember seeing one clip mm-hmm. where um, somebody had one of her um, debate, uh, one, one of the moments from the debate and they put it against um, music from uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And but, you know, it's like that sort of stuff uh, juxtaposed against, you know, yeah, like um, people just talking about how, no, this is somebody who only fueled self-hatred among people um, I knew um, who have since died. And it was interesting because in addition to the the guy I interviewed who you're talking about, Brian, who said, you know, it's incredibly surreal and upsetting to watch these young people just treat her like this campy meme. Um, you know, I talked to somebody else who was a fan of hers back in the day and said, it really hurts me to see people who are 20 years old saying like, Marianne Williamson told people not to take AZT when like Mm -hmm. they weren't there and I Mm -hmm. was and I saw her, you know, whatever, driving Mm -hmm. men to get their medication. So yeah, people are just sort of grasping around for what the truth might be or maybe Mm -hmm. some people you know don't particularly care and just are enjoying making her into a meme Mm -hmm. and we'll all forget about her in uh, a year or two when she's presumably not president (laughs) but i guess we'll see yeah what's your fight brandon i think about this a lot i think about the idea of authenticity and uh, specifically the fights we have when we talk about a queer artist going mainstream and what that means for their queer resonance. You know, is it still there? Are they chipping away at it when they decide to appeal to an audience that isn't um, majority queer? Um, And so I thought about this earlier this month, there was this uh, Pride Summit, the inaugural Pride Summit, um, hosted by Billboard (laughs) and The Hollywood Reporter, and um, talking about sort of queer representation um, and queer artistry. And one of the panelists, uh, Haley Kiyoko, who's a, a pop singer, um, she talked about how her sense of self has changed uh, since she's come into uh, the industry. And so uh, there's a spillboard piece that quotes um, a part of the, the conversation where she says, my approach to going into the industry was they can't know I'm gay, but I am gay, said Kyoko, lovingly named Lesbian Jesus um, <laughs> by her fan base. I would turn down gay media because I wanted to be known for my music. But then I thought... Why are you pushing this down when you can be breaking the stereotype on what a lesbian looks like? And so I thought that was one sort of aspect of to think about sort of like authenticity is in terms of your identity, how much of your queerness comes out in your artistry. Um, mm-hmm. And then another aspect of it, um, Tegan and Sarah, who are coming out with a new album this year. Um, yeah, um, should get them on the show. Um, <laughs> Uh, But they talked about um, a a different um, aspect of this a few years ago in an interview. They said, this is the only industry that I can think of where people are criticized for success. We're still the same old Tegan and Sarah. Why would anyone as a fan criticize us for being successful? Well, it might have seemed like we were selling out. What we were really doing was stepping up. Oh, shit. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I I didn't realize that people criticized them for. I didn't until I started uh, sort of like thinking through um, more of like what I've heard about this, like over the years. And um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of sort of interesting hand wringing over like what's lost and what's gained uh, when somebody becomes mainstream. And so I think uh, those two quotes sort of encapsulate um, two of the factors that go on. Um, And so I think one, um, on the one hand, there's certainly reason to certain questions that we should be asking. So are we diluting or blotting out parts of our identity um, when we decide to have this radical shift in audience? And who is this product for at this point? Um, 
And at the same time, I think that there are the sort of non-art considerations. And I'm sort of taking what Tegan and Sarah had said and sort of extending it a little bit. Yeah. The Tegan and Sarah example, I'm thinking about how the substance of their music shifted around Mm -hmm. the time when they got really mainstream popular. And it definitely became more poppy, more electronic, more dance music, um, which might just be their own artistic development. It also might be them hewing to the trend of the moment. Mm-hmm. I kind of don't care because their their music <laughs> is still so hella queer <laughs> and, and they're still hella queer. I think it's different. There would be a different situation if there were an artist that started uh, like not talking about their queerness anymore mm-hmm. or uh, down talking some of their fans. Um, I, I'm also interested in the artists who... Um, wait until they're very famous to come out. Mm-hmm. The idea that you might want to wait until you can make money from your mm-hmm. queerness to uh, broadcast your queerness uh, makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, like you're commodifying a marginalized identity. Um, it's funny. I was just thinking about uh, how that, how that uh, much of what we were, you were just saying, Christina, um, reminded me of our conversation about Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> Um, it's how, all he's the black hole that all of our yeah, conversations and, and when, just I, get sucked into. Well, and I don't, I don't, I don't want us to get sucked into no, that particular <laughs> black hole. But I, but I do think it's striking to think about, um, like where where does an artist or even a politician in that case like draw their power from? And I think I, I have, you know, I have not been out since I was like ten or anything. But I, I think since I came out at a a fairly average age, I think I have drawn so much like power and inspiration and just um, energy from my queerness. And so it's always strange to me to think about artists who are queer, but um, are hiding it or, or feel like it's like a, a, um, or, or politicians like Pete, but who think it is a, a, um, detriment to them, um, or a, or something that would get in their way. I I don't want to be, I don't want to sound too naive. I do understand again that there are like, there are structural limits placed on people. And so I'm not, I'm not stupid about that, but at the same time, God, I just feel like there's so much, so much to be gained from embracing your queerness creatively. Um, that it's, it's. I, I just, I, I have trouble relating. I don't think of people as like sellouts or like um, necessarily like bad for not, for not um, embracing it. You know, earlier. Um, but it is, it is perplexing to me. Maybe is mm-hmm. how I feel about it. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think I also think of it in terms of like the difference between like personal and private stuff, right? Um, and how for queer artists, it's perhaps not so easy to compartmentalize it in a way that like people who are not so much in some public eye um, to do. So like when they, I wonder if when some artists, you know, they delay sort of coming out publicly, perhaps it's less because they don't think that the industry, you know, just like entertainment industries are often just much more progressive generally. Um, But if they delay it, not because of potential pushback in the industry, but more sort of like behind the scenes reasons. So yeah, I think about artists like Janelle Monet, and I think she she says in that profile sort of growing up uh, in Kansas, it was, I think it was probably less, I'm sure she had sort of relationships and maybe it was more of an open secret in within sort of the music and entertainment industries. Um, and it was more about like, how's my family going to respond to this? Yeah. What does this mean for, am I ready to like sever those ties potentially, depending on how family takes it? 
Um, and so I wonder, I also think about how the stakes to an extent seem higher for people who are so famous, but I think it's yeah. a very interesting fight and debate that we'll, <laughs> I'm sure, continue to have. So. <laughs> yeah, so many interesting fights today on the podcast. I love it. Uh, listeners, if you have thoughts on these fights, if you're party to them, or if you have your own queer fights, we would love to hear about them. You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. All right. Now that we've hashed out some of the biggest fights going on among queers today, we thought it would be good to look back at an important one from our past. To help with that, we turn to historian Eric Marcus and our friends at the excellent podcast Making Gay History, just off its fifth season. In this segment from season two, you'll hear Eric's 1989 interview with Jean O'Leary, a major lesbian activist known for co-founding National Coming Out Day, organizing the first visit of gay activists to the White House, and, as you'll hear in this tape, an infamous battle of speeches with trans pioneer Sylvia Rivera in 1973. The root of the conflict? A serious disagreement between lesbian feminism and gay male culture over sexism and drag performance, one that proto-trans folks like Rivera found themselves caught in the middle of. Before we jump in, a quick note on terminology. Because this interview was conducted before transgender became a commonly recognized or claimed category, you'll hear earlier terms like transvestite and transsexual used here. For more on Rivera's story, check out the Making Gay History episodes with her from season one. They and the rest of the series can be found at makinggayhistory.com. Eric, take it away. In the end, Jean had no regrets about leaving the convent. But there were other things she regretted in her life. And you're about to hear one of those things. It's 1973, and Jean is at the Gay Pride Rally in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. By then, she'd led a split of the women from the Gay Activist Alliance and formed a new organization called Lesbian Feminist Liberation. Jean's group was protesting the rally organizers' decision to include drag queens as part of the entertainment. While Jean and other LFL members were passing out flyers to the crowd, Sylvia Rivera took the stage and made her now famous speech. You all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. The people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club. And that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Jean was reluctant to talk about what happened. The Jean I was sitting with outside the Ivy was not proud of what her 25-year-old self had done. This is so embarrassing. You're not going to print this, are you? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I hate this because, you know, oh well, anyway. Let me tell you why it's important. What it shows is is the evolution of, of thought and how we are, how we got to where we are now why you think the way you do now. And you didn't come to where you are now without having gone through okay, all of Okay, just this. so long as you can really put it in context. I, tr- I, will, I will trust you more as we go along. The whole book, I have to put the whole book in context because some of the things people did and said, yeah. they can't believe what they said and did. I mean, this is really something. But this was at a time when the sexism 
was just rampant between men and women in the gay community. How did, how did the sexism show itself? Well, it was blatant. It was the men um, actually treated women like surrogate mothers, lovers, sisters. Um, the women's role should be respected, and that's where you are. There was uh, very little, few women in leadership positions, and they were consciously kept out of them. Because just as gay people, you know, have to become visible in society, lesbians had to become visible because whenever people said gay, they always thought about gay men. We sat around actually for months and tried to figure out what were the women's issues that were different from feminist issues or different from gay issues. And quite frankly, to this day, no one has been able to come up with what those issues are. But it's a matter of attitude, it's a matter of positioning, it's a matter of respect, it's a matter of power, it's a matter of all those types of things, which are a little more subtle. And um, so what, and visibility, of course, visibility, just having people realize that there are lesbians in the world. And when you say gay, it has to include gay men and women. Um, so the, I guess the thing with the transvestite, I would never do this now, <laughs> but um, in those days, was like, well, here's a man dressing up as a woman and wearing all the things that we're trying to break free of. Such as? High heels, gir girdles, corsets, stockings, um, know, all the things that were just sort of binding women. And um, so we just decided to make a statement. We stayed up that night and typed this, up this little statement on the typewriter. We, we actually worked all night on it, and I'm sure it was just some small statement. Because we were knocking out theory at that time. So it wasn't just like we were, you know, writing off a paragraph of something. I mean, we were actually creating theory. And the discussion was, well, but there are laws on the books in the state. If a person had on more than three items of clothing of the other person's sex, then um, they could be called on that. And so they said, well, that must mean the women, and we could all be thrown in jail for cross-dressing, and so we really shouldn't criticize. We should try to kind of support this kind of thing. So then we decided that, okay, well, we're not going to attack cross-dressing. We'll attack um, men who do it for profit, as opposed to do it for a statement. So Vito Russo was a very good friend of mine, and we had a falling out over this issue, but he was still trying to be a trying to accommodate. Actually, I think he helped me come up on the stage because I was not scheduled as a scheduled speaker. So I got up there. On the stage? On the stage. In front of how many people? Oh, I mean, you know, tens of thousands, whatever it was. It wasn't, you know, the 200,000 we have nowadays, but it was quite a few. And I remember that then I got up there, and this is a little hazy. I don't remember the whole thing, because, I mean, you're in the situation. Lesbian Feminist Liberation negotiated for a week and a half, using the means that rational women and women have always used in the past, not disruptive means, to try to get up here and read a statement. We were told no, that there would be no political statements read today. Because one person, a man, Sylvia, gets up here and causes a ruckus, we are now allowed to read our statement. And I think that says something right there. Now, I'd like to go on and speak, but I have written here a statement that is backed up by a hundred women. And this was voted on, so I'm just going to read this statement. So, I read the statement. What did you say? Well, that we at the Lesbian Feminist Liberation protest the um, cross-dressing of men in women's clothes for, for purposes of profit. 
and we wanted to make that statement clear. When men impersonate women for, persons, for reasons of entertainment or profit, they insult women. We, we support the right of every person to dress in the way that she or he wishes. But we are opposed to the exploitation of women by men for entertainment or profit. Men have been telling us who we are all our lives. They have tried to do it with scholarship, with religion, with psychiatry. When all else fails, they have used humor to tell us and each other who and what we are. What we object to today is another instance in which men laughing with one another at what they present as women are telling us who they think we are. We don't want to know. Men have never been able to show us ourselves. We are coming into a time and a place as women at which we can and do show one another who we are. Let men tell each other what they think of women. Let us tell you who we are. There was an incredible reaction. I mean, there was a lot of hostility. Men and women started fighting with each other out in the crowd. Physically or, or there verbally? There was some physical. There was a lot of verbal. I don't know what happened after that. I remember leaving. I can tell you what happened. Okay, what happened? <clears throat> Another drag queen got up on a stage who was livid mm. and referred to you as those bitches, I believe. Mm. Um, Maybe that's what started the fight. Because he said that we, you know, the queen started the, the Stonewall riot and you're not going to kick us out of the movement. Mm -hmm. um, so that, do you recall him getting up there at all? Vaguely now, I do, vaguely. I don't have a picture of it, but I do remember that. I remember getting off the stage and walking through the crowd I was alone for some reason, and um, everybody had gone every which way, and I guess we were going to meet over at Bonnie and Clyde's, which was right around the corner, and we went in there to meet, and I think that's where we heard that Bette Midler had come down <laughs> to, to sort of smooth things over and saying, you know, you got to be friends, and how did that happen? I don't think I was there when to see her actually do that, because I don't recall it. I just was like, okay, bye. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that I was running away from it, mm -hmm. but I remember I was out of there. It's like I'd done my thing, and now let's get out of here. Let's leave. This is hard. Yeah, looking back on it, why are you embarrassed by that now? Um, because I have since then. I mean, I've gone during the Anita Bryant campaign, for instance, um, down in Dade County, Florida. I used to go down there and help them with the the campaign, and I'd stay at the Windward Hotel which was just full of transvestites, transsexuals, wonderful, darling, lovable people that I got to know as people and got to know their lives and their stories and um, who they are, why they were. And, you know, you just, as you grow older, you, first of all, you learn more and you mellow in terms of your precision about what has to be exactly right and politically correct. And right now, I have, I like, it's, it's hard even to be tolerant for myself of exact political correctness and I know that I went through it and I have to have patience with the people you know, that come up now that are going through the same thing because it's a process it is a process that's it for this month but before we go it's time for our updates to the gay agenda in keeping with our fights theme we've each brought a piece of culture that we've fought about or witnessed fights about in our own lives. Brandon, start us off. 
Surprise, surprise. My gay agenda item is the artist Kim Petras. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's a German pop star. She is beloved by the gays. Um, for consistently putting out bop after bop. She's somebody who is not signed to a major label. Um, She's also very important because of the sort of representation that she gives to uh, trans artists in particular. Um, But a big part of the controversy is, you know, who she decides to work with. And so I think at least... I can at least say that at least almost every song that she has created has she's done with um, Dr. Luke has been her collaborator. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. Um, and so for our listeners who don't know, Dr. Luke is infamous at this point um, because he's been um, engaged in this years long, uh, very public uh, legal dispute with Kesha, um, who, among other people, has accused him of um, various forms of abuse. Um, And so the question that sort of comes up with Petras is, you know, um, uh, this this tension of how an artist doing so much for various aspects of representation is facing what at least what I think is legitimate criticism. Right. Um, It opens up debates about sort of what responsibility artists and also fans um, have to support their and others communities. You know, it it hasn't sunk her career or anything like that. I think, you know, gays are still going to continue to buy her music and listen to her music and go to her her shows. Um, But it's definitely something that complicates um, what it means to um, love and sort of revere a pop star who is doing so much. Um, but it's also like with whom is all of that work being accomplished with? So. Yeah, that's a, you've given me a lot to think about, Brandon, in <laughs> <laughs> my new fandom. Um, my piece is an article in BuzzFeed that ran a couple months ago by Shannon Keating. The piece is called The Time I Went on a Lesbian Cruise and It Blew Up My Entire Life. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. So this piece made a splash, <laughs> pun intended. Um, it's So Shannon is a cisgender lesbian in her late 20s. The piece is a very personal, uh, very long essay about her time on an Olivia cruise, which is the long-running lesbian travel company. Um, I think she went on the cruise to sort of look at how the business was faring in this era where, you know, queer versus lesbian uh, terminology debates are being fought. um, And, you know, the ideas of trans inclusivity or, you know, transphobic, quote unquote, feminism are clashing in these lesbian spaces. Um, But then she ended up falling in love with someone she met on the cruise, um, dumping her long-term partner, who is a non-binary queer person. So it was very well-received in most corners of the internet. I know a lot of uh, straight people here at Slate were gushing over it, and queer people. The queers read it with great interest, as you might imagine. Um, But there were definitely some other people who had criticisms of it, um, especially in terms of its depiction of non-binary people um, and trans people of all genders. You know, it... It, it's hard because I I definitely understood where she was coming from and where the people who were launching criticisms against the piece were coming from. Um, I have to give her credit, though, for trying to write about this stuff at all because it's incredibly thorny and complex and also incredibly personal. It's very difficult to write about personal things in a way that are very that's very clearly personal and specific. Um, and that won't be taken as generalizations about a a whole other group of people. Um, 
so you know, I want there to be ways to talk about the social construction of ident- the social construction of identity and gender and labels and the very real uh, losses that might be involved or perceived when certain categories of identity become less popular. So it's it's a really interesting piece. The criticisms of it are also really interesting and valid. Um, and you know, it's as you can see, I'm still thinking about it and processing it a month or two later. Um, so I highly recommend reading the piece and also uh, seeking out some of the arguments that people were making against it. Brian. Uh, yeah. So I have I have another piece. Um, it is from back from 2017, but I still think about it all the time. Um, it's called Together Alone, the Epidemic of Gay Loneliness. Oh, I remember um, that yeah, one. I remember that too. It was by Mike, a journalist Michael Hobbs in uh, HuffPost Highline. Um, highly recommend that you read it. Um, it is not a piece that I like very much, <laughs> but I, I think it is a, nonetheless a great piece. Um, and so to quickly just characterize what it was about, uh, Hobbes drew on sort of a combination of, of his own personal anecdotes, sociology, public health data to explain uh, by his reckoning that, quote, it is still dangerously alienating to go through life as a man attracted to other men. Um, it sort of drew this portrait of a very urban, affluent, gay male life defined by isolation and anxiety, uh, has substance abuse, empty sex, uh, and then in you know too many cases, uh, self-harm and suicide. Um, and he's kind of pushing back against this like Dan Savage idea that you know it, it gets better um, when all the people around him um, and, and that he, that these this uh, the research that he's citing is sort of about uh, felt profoundly alone. Um, I uh, read this piece like, like everyone did. I think this is one of those pieces that just like went around like crazy at the time um, and like felt so deeply alienated from it myself. Um, I did not understand or recognize its portrait of gay life. Um, I couldn't really fathom that gayness could be a source of confusion or separation like this because as I was just saying in an earlier segment, like to me it's 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 like the source of connection and power and, and creative energy and all of that. Um, and so I got in many fights about this back at the time. Um, we ran even a few critiques of it um, that I think are still interesting to read. Um, but nonetheless, so many people related to it that clearly uh, it is something that is happening in the world. And so I think it's it's a piece that uh, and, and a phenomenon that is worth uh, taking seriously uh, and thinking about even if it, it didn't speak to me directly. Um, so yeah, uh, Together Alone, the Epidemic of Gay Loneliness. That's it for the show. Um, just want to end with a little toast to Brandon. This mm. was his last episode. Brandon, you, the three of us have birthed this baby <laughs> together. It's a year old now. It can possibly walk. Um, it's got a tooth or two. And none of this would have been possible without you. I, I, I struggle to imagine this show without you, but you know, we couldn't be prouder and more excited to see what you do at CNN. Keep listening, please, oh, and sending us <laughs> your all of your uh, critical feedback. <laughs> yeah, you're you're an irreplaceable yeah. gem. Oh, thank you. And I also yeah. just want to say, like, I thank you guys for the opportunity to even like be a part of this for the past year. And uh, whenever I think about podcasting, and hopefully I will be a guest on at some point. Um, but whenever, whenever I think about podcasting, one of the things I've loved about doing this is being able to engage in these sort of political and cultural conversations in a way that isn't 
just in my own head, sort of like writing, <laughs> but it's you know <laughs> down with like smart people and um, actually actually hashing things out. So I will I will miss um, the frequency that I was able to do this. Yeah. Ugh. Love you so much. Okay, Brandon, do you want to take us out one last time? I will. So please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions at outwardpodcast.slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Uh, thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the Conflict Diverse Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. Outward will be back in your feeds on September 18th. Bye, Christina. I love you, Brandon. Bye, Brian. Sob, 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 sob. (laughs) I love you you both. Bye. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. And one more time for our listeners, stay gay. 